0: You're listening to Sermon Audio from Ransom City Church. For more audio content, visit ransomcitychurch.org. I'm going to begin by reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and then I will pray and we'll, we'll jump in. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 starting in verse 5. It says this, "What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed," As the, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we ask for your help this morning. We ask that you bless us with ears to hear and eyes to see what your word has for us, um, that you would give us uh, unity, grace with one another, um, love for the brothers and sisters of the church. We pray that we would leave this morning encouraged by your word, convicted, and also uh, strengthened to go out on mission. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so, uh, Article 2, Section 3, Clause 1 of the U.S. Constitution (laughs) says uh, that the President is required to give to Congress a regular State of the Union address. And until Woodrow Wilson, this was just simply a piece of paper that the President would write and send to Congress as a letter, but... uh, to bring back the pomp and circumstance of England, Woodrow Wilson found it fit to deliver this address in person as a speech and has since been practiced this way. Um, And I am no president, but I do preside over you as a pastor. And so I'm going to be giving you guys the state of the church this morning, a little address to let you know how we're doing and some vision uh, for the church as we go forward. So... Almost all weeks that you guys are here on a Sunday, we'll be taking a passage of scripture and just preaching through it exegetically. That is the normal diet of the church, as at least it should be. Um, So most weeks we're going from one end of the Bible uh, or one end of the book of of a book of the Bible to the other, like we've been going through Romans for most of the last year. Um, But some weeks, like today, we will take some time to address a topic, topical sermon. So even though it's not the normal diet of preaching here, today is one of those days. So first... Want to give you guys a little bit of a recap for the last year-ish. Um, there was an illness. Maybe you heard about it in the news. Um, that's the joke part. Um, but be, you know, and so because we're a church that doesn't own its own building, because we rent space, um, and we decided not to close, we found ourselves very quickly needing to uproot and find a new space in March of last year. Right? Is so, it? Is it two years? No, it's last year. <laughs> Time hole. Um, so anyway, we we found ourselves in that situation. Fast forward to now, that happened eleven times. Um, in a little over a year, and so uh, last we counted eleven locations in two states in just a little over a year. And so, actually, recently a pastor friend of mine named Jared, who hosts a podcast called The Shepherd's Crook, he actually na- like named us and said like, oh, "I have a buddy of mine. It's crazy the difficulties of urban church planting. These guys who don't own a building. It's it was crazy. They had to move like ten times. They even had to go to Wisconsin. So so we're famous now, but not in a way that I would." Prefer. Um, but just to give you guys a, a sense here, eleven times, two states, one year—that's unique, right? That's um, that's a little crazy, and so. I want to tell you that, you know, that we went through this unique difficulty, um, and church planting, it almost always means at some point, if you don't own your own space, that you'll be shuffled a little bit, like in the next few months, we'll be shuffled, you know, one time here, one time there, that's kind of normal, but 11 times in two states in one year, that's unique. So, first, I do just want to say how grateful we are to minister to you guys as your pastors. Um, we love you. We love this church. Um, we love the people in it. And we thank you for having the spiritual endurance uh, to move 11 different times uh, with us to worship with the people of God, right? I'm proud of you guys that you wouldn't let something so small and insignificant like a worldwide pandemic and a government shutdown of all society and business for a year to be that small thing that takes you away from the worship of God. And so I'm reminded with the Apostle Paul when he wrote to the church in Philippi, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. So Paul loved the Philippian church because of their partnership in the gospel and that it was from day one until now. They didn't quit. And so those of you who know me well know that I am not a flatterer and that sometimes it even pains me to give compliments. And so you should know that this is sincere and I really do love you guys and this is a real compliment. Um, And so take it as a true commendation of your patient endurance as the church while the world around us was, to put it lightly, chaotic, a little chaotic. Um, So that's the first thing. Second thing, We don't really ever want to have to ask you to do that again. You know, take it or leave it. Some of you guys might have liked moving 11 times and two states in a year. We didn't really care for that as much. And so our aim is to put some roots back down uh, here and ultimately find us a permanent space to call home. And so oftentimes... The language of this, this work and this effort of starting churches and, and, and moving churches and things like that is called planting, and, and in our case, replanting. And so no doubt you've heard us use that language um, of planting or cultivation. It's used throughout scripture. I read it at the top of the sermon that uh, Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered, God gave the growth. Um, you see Jesus use this with the parable of the sower. He uses the parable of the mustard seed as well in Mark 4. He even refers to the lost as a field that the laborers are to go out and harvest. And so it's the idea of church planting. And it was, in the Lord's good humor, his sovereign will that we would be uprooted uh, last year. And our little plant had its roots pulled from the ground and essentially kind of put into a bucket and carried all over God's green earth, um, uh, most of northern Wisconsin, or southern Wisconsin and northern Illinois. And so now we think it's time to replant, to kind of put our roots back in the ground and often when you hear the topic of replanting a church it's brought up because of some sort of major church split some problem some internal drama that it's like we got to put that church behind us and just be a new church for us none of that's true I mean we really we're we're doing all right um we're we're fine that you know we we didn't have any sort of major battle Seth is still here Greg's still here I'm still here um although we'll you know we'll see no um, <laughs> but no we're we're replanting we're reputting our our roots in the ground um, simply because they were pulled up, and so that's that's the idea here so in an effort to put our roots down, what does this mean? What does this not mean Well firstly I, I want to let you know it doesn't mean very much in the sense of major changes in in one sense there's no um, you know, we're not all of a sudden we're Episcopal, or you know, like we're we're a Baptist church still. We're we're still the same church. We still the same leadership, same elders, same deacons. Nothing like that changed. Um, and so, this is more just using the language of replanting is just an acknowledgement that our roots were pulled up and they need to be put back down again. And so, part of the vision going forward for us as a church is to view ourselves as replanting the church. So there's that, um, and. Uh, It's more that now we get to fully put ourselves back into the work of building the church, Uh, winning the loss, preaching Christ, serving the community, devoting ourselves to fellowship and prayer. And so one question that we've had is, so why Lake County? Um, We've landed on, for one, a county rather than just a city or a, a specific building yet is because we wanted it to be general enough. Uh, that we weren't picking a specific city because we haven't found that permanent space. So we wanted it to be a a large enough space that we have some room there uh, for for finding that, but also specific enough that um, for people who, like myself, we were ready to move and find a new house, and it was like, where's that going to be? You know, is it (laughs) in another state? Is it in this city? Is it in that city? So we wanted to pick um, a specific enough location that it's like, hey, we're going to try and land in this And so we wanted to to have that as part of the vision is we're we're picking a space, but it's not naming a specific city yet uh, that we might find a little bit room, a little bit of room for a permanent space there. Um, But why Lake County and not just any county? Part of it is cost of living, specifically housing. It's less expensive than Evanston by a long shot. To give you an idea, I looked up last night uh, just like on a on like a house finding website houses in Evanston under two hundred thousand dollars, which yeah, you know, it's pretty good. There were two um, in the whole city, and they were both in a pretty high crime neighborhood of Evanston. And one of the two had one bedroom as a house. So to give you an idea, this is hard. This is a hard place to put down roots and grow as a church. And we want to be somewhere where we think people can raise families, buy homes, stay for a lifetime, raise children who can do the same. And we think that getting just a little bit further out from Evanston specifically, and even Cook County, um, can help make that a reality for a lot of people. And then just as importantly as housing costs, we looked at like cost of commercial real estate. The average cost of commercial real estate is very, very high (laughs) in Evanston. Um, I did a similar search to the housing thing. We found one spot, and it was like, you know... A basement. It was like a. It was a basement in an office building, like a, a medical office building, um, with like the pipes and everything. All exposed. so it was like so not not much room there. And so there's that. And then also uh, strategically, many many people are moving out away from the city right now and looking for uh, more suburban locations. And so we want to be there uh, to catch them. And many faithful Christians are looking for a faithful church that didn't close and won't close again the next time something like COVID happens. And so we want to put roots back down in a place where we're less likely to have to uproot again and be there strategically for the people who are looking to do the same. And part of it is this idea of being able to, you know, own homes, own businesses, raise up families. Um, In order to fight a naval war, you typically need a Navy, right? Um, And in order to fight a culture war, you kind of have to have a culture. And so we want to do that. We want to build up the church as a culture, um, and we want to replant our roots in a place where we think we can do that for the long haul. And so to give you kind of a picture, our goal is not to Christianize the pagan culture, right? Uh, that it's, you know, it's like Nineveh. It doesn't know its right hand from its left. Uh, we, you know, just get them to, to curse less or if we could just get them to say Merry Christmas again, you know, instead of Happy Holidays. I think we're on the right track. You know, our, our goal is not to get Taylor Swift to write Christian music, right? We, our, our goal is, you know, as we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven right and so we want to see the expansion of God's kingdom and Jesus is the one building his church right Jesus is building his church and his church culture and we want to be serving that end and inviting the world in and so we see essentially there is a culture in opposition to God the whole world right now is preaching their version of the good news as they see it but it's folly it's all self-help nonsense right? Wash your face, girl. Uh, you can do it. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Uh, if you invest money my way, you'll be happy. If you do my fitness routine, you'll be happy. If you have random hookups, you'll be happy. If you look at porn, you'll be happy. Keep scrolling and you'll be happy, right? Um, and, and I think, the, you know, this listen to the world mindset, the following of its ways, it's emptiness. But they're saying, they're preaching their, their good news, a really good advice. Do it my way and that emptiness will go away but we know as christians that that's a lie. We know that that's a lie, that's folly, trying to trying to do their good advice rather than trust the good news of scripture. And the good news is that we can't clean ourselves up. That we are a corpse floating down river and that river eventually drops into the pit of hell. And that Jesus took on flesh, dwelt among us, took our sin, paid for it with his blood, and he beat death in the grave and took us with him out of it. Amen. And so our goal is to preach that truth and live accordingly to it. We want to see the kingdom come. We want to build the church with Christ. Be his hands and feet doing that. And so, our goal, like I said, isn't, get, isn't to get Taylor Swift to write Christian music. It's to, bite, it's to write the best music, right? And, and it's not that all the songs have to be explicit gospel songs, and that's a sermon for another day, but we should be writing the best music, starting the best schools, running the best businesses, inventing the best technology, uh, baking the tastiest brownies, Georgia. Uh, and we should be doing this because Christians actually know what music and education and food and work are for. We're the only ones who know. And they are gifts to be enjoyed by God's people to magnify his greatness in creation. They are domains of creation that we are to take over for Christ's kingdom. As Abraham Kuyper has said, There is not one square inch over the domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Right, that is the vision. And when you cook and enjoy a cheeseburger that way, I promise it will taste different. When you educate your children that way, they will learn differently. When you write music that is true and good and beautiful because it's in accord with actual reality, it will sound different. When we build families that honor the God given differences between men and women and glory in the beautiful differences and raise children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, we will be honoring the verse that says, So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. We want to be building a culture that actually does know its right hand from its left and inviting the world in. We want to be building the kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. That's our prayer. That's our mission. And then we want to call out to our pagan friends and family and neighbors and invite them in to enjoy the world of God as he has made it in right fellowship with him through Christ. That's the idea. And so part of replanting is we get some opportunities, right? God, again, he pulled up our roots. So now we get the opportunity to put them back down. And this gives us an opportunity to recenter our vision as a church, an opportunity to firm up our convictions to the Great Commitment, or to the Great Commission, sorry, and evangelism, um, an opportunity to reassess all of this with fresh eyes. And so part of this will probably mean some rebranding, even possibly renaming of the church. No more details on that right now. You can ask us questions about it, but more to come. Um, also, this is part of it is just that in, in replanting, re roots back down, we have some stability of not being moved around every other week. Um, and so we can get back to some of our normal rhythms of baptisms and child dedications and evangelism and community and prayer events that we basically had to put on hold for the last year, either because people were so afraid to meet with a stranger to do evangelism or come to a community event, or we just simply didn't have the bandwidth to do it or a place to do it. And so, I mean, I mean, for goodness sakes, you guys probably know how hard it was to even invite people to church because I didn't know where church was going to be in a week or so, right? And that was constantly happening. We actually had to turn off our Google and Facebook ads that we have up for the church, which is how a lot of people find us. We had to turn those off because our location changed so much we didn't know where to invite people to go. And so inviting people to the church, if you haven't been, start doing it again. Right. Be evangelizing, be preaching the good news to people because they probably really need it right now. And I would say attend all of the events that we'll be putting on, even if it's just a community event that might seem like nothing. But God specifically designed us to live in community. And so even if it's just, you know, go to someone's house and have a meal, do it. There's going to be spiritual worth to that. Have fun with each other. Be hospitable with each other. Share and enjoy meals. Have busy tables together. Um, And so in part of the replanting process, there's going to be some, you know, some small shifts, some small transitions, refocuses, clarifications. And I said up top most weeks we preach. We preach from one passage of scripture. We preach from the beginning of a book to the end. We rarely do sermons like today, but you will probably see some topical sermons as needed from the pulpit to address different issues or topics as we go forward. One of those small shifts that we wanted to make, as we now have a little bit of breathing room, a little bit of bandwidth to address it, is the topic of wine versus grape juice in the Lord's Supper. So irony of all ironies, probably the person who least cares about alcohol or wine is going to be addressing that today with you. Um, So the majority of the sermon today, I'm going to be spending talking about the goodness of alcohol from scripture and why it should be used in the Lord's Supper. Uh, If you know me at all, that's very funny. Um, So, hopefully, without too much emotional whiplash, let's turn to 1 Corinthians again. (laughs) Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, uh, starting in verse 17. Paul writes this But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as the church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. But when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So in 1869, 1869, Thomas Bramwell Welch Invented grape juice And to this day You will see Welch's grape juice uh, On shelves In probably every grocery store in the US Um, You've probably also never Given that a second thought that grape juice exists, but let's go back about 150 years to examine a little bit about T.B. Welch and his invention. Um, but even before that, I want to discuss a little bit about why grape juice needed to be invented because I don't know about you, but I did not know that grape juice needed to be invented. That seems like pretty straightforward you crush the grapes, you get the juice, you got grape juice. But the skin of a grape actually contains wild yeast in the skin. God designed grapes this way, that when they break or when they're crushed and the juice comes out, the wild yeast on the skin eats the sugar and then ferments and turns into alcohol. And it tops out at about 15% and then the yeast dies and any sugar remaining is the sweetness of the wine. So there you go. That's how God made it. Uh, wine is a natural essentially a naturally occurring drink in the world. And T.B. Welch didn't like the idea of wine at the communion feast of the church. At the ripe old age of 17, he joined the Wesleyan Methodists. And from its beginning, this is interesting, I found this, from its beginning, the Wesleyan Methodist connection strongly opposed, quote, the manufacturing, buying, selling, or using of intoxicating liquors. And two, so there's two things from their beginning, Buying, selling, using intoxicating liquors. And two, slave holding, buying, or selling of slaves. So using alcohol and slave holding. I hope you can see, like me, that one of these things is not like the other. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, in an effort to uh, quell the use of wine at the church service in 1869, T.B. Welch invented the method of pasteurizing grape juice so that the fermentation would be stopped and the drink would remain non-alcoholic. And then he talked to local churches. Uh, he talked them into using this non-alcoholic wine for communion services, calling it Dr. Welch's Unfermented Wine. Okay, And that's the reason today that... Many, many churches use grape juice in their church service, as we have T.B. Welch to thank, including our church up until today. And this is a good lesson for us. It's a good lesson on the idea of intentions, right? That intentions can be wrong, even if well-meaning, if they contradict scripture. And this is a good lesson because we can often see a problem, a real problem. And the Wesleyan Methodists saw a real problem. Problem that there was drunkenness and it was rampant in the US, unlike today, we've thankfully put that behind us. But at the time, (laughs) there was this rampant wickedness of drunkenness. And if we fail to hold scripture as our all-sufficient authority, we will both misdiagnose a problem and misuse a prescription to solve it. We we will miss both. And so that's there's there's a, a lesson here. That's why we have to see that scripture is all sufficient for life and godliness. It is our best and final authority in these matters and good intentions are not enough. And also I would say this is a good lesson to examine your traditions and if you think you don't have any you probably have more than more than most. And so on this issue there is often a battle in the minds of some should I honor the Lord by abstaining from something that he says is good he says is a gift but could be misused. Right? Wine can be misused. It can be used for drunkenness. Noah took part in this, right? He was, I think, the first person to get drunk in scripture. Should we abstain from something that is good but could be misused? Or should I honor the Lord if he gives it to us and commands us to partake in it? I hope the answer is certainly the latter for you, right? If there is a command from the Lord, we must always trust. uh, uh, We must trust the commands of the Lord against our own reasoning and our own supposed logic. We can't possibly be wiser or more well-intentioned than the Lord. And so that is why as a church, and this isn't just related to, to wine and the communion feast, but as a church, we hold to the regulative, principle of worship. And what this means is that God regulates how we are to worship him. We don't get to invent that. We don't get to be creative or innovative in how we worship God. And so he regulates our worship. We don't get to make it up. And our good intentions are not sufficient for designing worship to the Lord we must look to his word and see how he demands to be worshipped and Christ instituted two sacramental symbols for his New Testament church one of them the Lord's Supper and he did so with bread and wine he did and we you know some especially like teetotaling Baptists it's funny that started with Methodists but usually uh, non-alcoholic that argument usually comes from a Baptist camp uh, they often will say but was it alcoholic I don't think it was alcoholic right could it have been just grape juice well First of all, it was almost impossible again to have pure grape juice at the time for very long because of the natural fermenting process and the lack of pasteurization. But also this was the Passover meal where we know when Jesus instituted it, he was sitting down to have Passover and we know that it was wine because that was the prescription for the Passover meal in the Old Testament. And we know that Jesus uh, had to fulfill all righteousness. He had to perfectly follow Old Testament law to earn a righteousness for us. And so we know that he had to have been using wine when he did this. Um, and then uh, finally, uh, the church in Corinth was getting drunk on something, right? Um, and so uh, what you don't see Paul doing, though, to solve this is he doesn't prohibit the use of wine at the Lord's Supper. He prohibits drunkenness. That's, that's the idea. Drinking wine was not the sin. Getting drunk with it was. And also we have to ask, what does wine represent in Scripture, well, I would say much like the water of baptism points us back to the Exodus story, right, where we see water is used throughout Scripture to talk about blessing for God's people, cursing for his enemies. We think about that Exodus story where God's people are saved by walking through the waters, and that very same water that is their salvation is the destruction of Of Pharaoh and his armies, the enemy of the people of God. And so the Lord's Supper also intentionally was instituted at Passover to point us back to the Passover meal that the Jews ate. Because when the wrath of God came on Egypt, it came on all of Egypt. And that wrath was both the salvation of the Jews and the destruction of the Egyptians. And only the blood of the lamb that caused the wrath of God to, to pass over was the salvation of the Jews, the destruction of the Egyptians. And so we see that throughout scripture. We also see wine is a blessing. It's described as having medicinal use in, the, um, the, uh, in Luke 10 and in 1 Timothy 5. It has sacramental use all the way back to Genesis. Genesis 14, we see Melchizedek brings out wine and bread for Abraham prefiguring christ we see it used in temple worship in leviticus and numbers and like i said the passover feast we see in psalm 104 it's given to gladden the heart of man it says in psalm 104 starting in verse 14 you cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man We see that Jesus drank wine in Luke seven, right? He was, uh, the son of man has come eating and drinking and many sinners called him a drunkard for it, but he was drinking wine. And we see that Jesus will drink wine in the kingdom. He says that he will drink it and he'll be drinking it with us, Matthew 26, 29. We see in Isaiah 25 as this picture of the future glory of the earth when all things are made right. It says, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast, of rich food, of a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. So part of what heaven is like is ribeye steaks and a good glass of wine, which the Lord will redeem my taste buds to like that when I get there. Um, (laughs) I as yet do not like wine. Um, Jesus' first miracle was to turn water into wine and not just any water either. He did this uh, with the ceremonial water basins um, that the Jews used to ceremonially wash themselves externally to be clean. But Jesus fills up that which washes away not just the outward dirt, but washes away our sins. He fills it up with his good new wine. And so the blood of Christ is far more potent than Jewish ceremonial customs. And it was good wine. It was the best wine. And it was not grape juice. There's a quote from a pastor, Brian Abshire. Um, I don't know who he is. I just, when I was looking up resources on on making the transition from grape juice to wine, there was a lot of good help. And this quote I really liked. He says, are there implications to wine versus grape juice? Think with me for a moment. Look at what passes for broad evangelical Christianity in our country today. Are we not agreed that far too much of American evangelical Christianity is like salt that has lost its savor? Is not American evangelicalism a bland, tasteless, compromised religion, antinomian and Arminian, failing to act as a light to the world? At risk of giving offense, is not the American church like wine without alcohol? A syrupy, sweet, non-controversial religion, all flavor and no punch. I think that sums it up pretty well. It's okay to giggle. I mean, that's, that is an apt comparison to our church today. We see and this is one of my favorite examples of wine as a symbol as typology in, in the New Testament, Matthew 20, the sons of Zebedee, James and John, pull on their mom's apron and says, you know, they say, "Mom, go go make sure we have good places to sit at in the kingdom when Jesus enters into glory." And so she runs up and I love this is at, not in my notes, but I love that he names them sons of thunder so who's thunder, right? Uh, mom comes up and thunders in and, you know, and says, make sure my boys get a good spot, Jesus, right? And, and Jesus turns to them and we see, you know, both the, pa- the, the cup of blessing, the cup of, the cup of cursing in this passage. Jesus answers them, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they said to him, we're able Of course they are right and he said to them you will drink my cup but to sit at my right hand and my left is not mine to grant it's prepared for those or it's for those who's been prepared for my father but there are actually two cups mentioned in this passage i don't know if you caught it but he says that they don't know what they're asking because he asks if if they can drink the cup that he will drink which what cup did jesus drink it's the cup of wrath the cup of cursing for us and he's implying you can't do it But then he says, you will drink from my cup. And so the promise is that the disciples will drink from Jesus's cup, the cup of blessing. But that it's different from the cup that he's going to drink, the cup of judgment that's prepared for their sins and for ours. And so the hope of the gospel is that even though we are sinners who have been storing up the wrath of God into a cup that we are all made to drink at the end of eternity, Jesus reaches across the table and takes our cup, drinks it to the bottom, suffers under the wrath of God, dies, rises again, and then he offers his cup to us and says, please drink the cup of blessing that I have earned for you. And so ultimately, the reason that we're transitioning to wine is because it's not our supper. It's the Lord's supper. He gets to set the parameters on it and it's in remembrance of him. And I know that some of you guys are going to have concerns. Some of you guys are going to have questions. I know probably, you know, Romans 14 might be coming to mind if I, you know, I, I know that, you know, Paul says there that if, if what I eat or drink causes a, a weaker brother to stumble, you know, right? But Paul wrote Romans 14. He also wrote 1 Corinthians 11. Um, and we we can't make those at war with each other. He doesn't forbid the drinking of wine, least of all in the communion table. And so I loved this quote as well on this same topic of, of this. Uh, Pastor Brian Sovey he said, the goal is not that we would all become the weaker brother, but that the weaker brother would become stronger. And like I said, we know that in the kingdom, we will all be the stronger one, uh, drinking wine with Jesus in, in the new heavens and earth. And so to close, uh, the church in Corinth was wrongly practicing the supper and Paul was calling them out. They were wrongly practicing the supper and they were doing it by Pushing each other out of the way and taking too much, drinking too much wine, right? And others were going hungry or thirsty. They failed to take part in the feast rightly because it was no longer a feast of unity or a communion. And so, what I don't want us to do is mirror their mistake by having the Lord's Supper be occasion for disunity in another way by abstaining from taking it. So, I would bet that most people today, hearing this sermon, that you guys are not terribly surprised that the Bible says we should use wine and we're going to use wine. That most people, I would think, are probably not super surprised by that. Um, But I also uh, have to assume that someone might have questions or concerns about this, about partaking in the Lord's Supper using wine. And I do want to address those potential concerns. I don't want the Lord's Supper to be a time of disunity for the people of God and just push ahead with it. And so I want it to be a time of unity Um, because that's what it is. It's the Lord's table where the church gathers to to feast with each other and with the Lord. And so I think in light of this sermon, uh, you should come to the table, commune with God, take the bread, take the wine, um, and adjust your convictions accordingly. But as we move to take the Lord's Supper together in a moment, uh, I know that there may be someone in the room, a brother or sister in the room that might be struggling with this. Uh, Maybe not, maybe I'm talking to no one. And I would like to think my sermons are so good and so clear that no one has any questions or doubts at this point, but uh, none of us are perfect, right? And so um, maybe it's still a point where you're like, I don't know, you know, I feel like you dropped a bomb on me here. I haven't thought about this. I need time to think about it. If it is truly a conscience issue, I'll give you instruction on that. If it's just a preference thing, like like me, I don't like wine, I would say forego your preference, And take the Lord's Supper together uh, to accomplish unity with the Lord and with the church. But if your conscience is truly an issue here, my instruction is for today, come and take the bread at least. Uh, I would say don't stay there. Please talk to me or talk to one of the other pastors uh, today after the service or let us know if you'd like to talk during the week. We want to make ourselves available for questions. I know this was like drinking out of the fire hose, which never happens in any of my sermons. (laughs) Um, But I would hope that you all know that there's a standing invitation That we try to be pretty approachable. I know that my face isn't. Um, You know, the the Lord has given me a surly countenance. Um, And so, but I try to tell you at least that I am really approachable, even if I don't look like it. And I, I just want you to know there's always a standing offer to come and talk to the pastors, to ask theological questions. To uh, ask for prayer, to get pastoral counsel—that is always. That's always a standing offer after church. We try and make ourselves available for that, even if we're packing up, even if we look busy. Please talk to us. But especially this week, I just wanted to remind you that that invitation is there. Um, and so, even if you don't have concerns, maybe even if you're not struggling, you just have some clarifying questions because I threw a lot at you. Come talk to us. Um, but with that, I do want to read from 1 Corinthians 10 and invite us to the Lord's table. So 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? And the bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, that it is a light to our feet and a lamp to our path. We thank you, um, even if it's not everyone's preference, we thank you for the good gifts that you give us, including wine, Um, that you give it to us to gladden the heart of man. You give it to us to to see great symbols and typology of your blessing and your cursing upon your people and your enemies. And so I pray this morning um, that we would, that we would see Christ's body broken for us, in this, that we would taste and see that the Lord is good, that we would um, not just hear your word spoken, but in this, that we would taste and touch and smell um, the gospel uh, through the taking of the Lord's Supper, that you would make the real presence of Christ um, as near to us and as dear to us as these elements of bread and wine are. And so we pray right now, Lord, that you would be with us as we head to your table, as we take of the bread and wine, um, and that you would uh, convict our hearts of sin, that we would go not in an unworthy manner, as Paul instructs the Corinthians, but that we would go discerning ourselves, that we would um, go repentant of our sin. And Lord, if any of us is... Unrepentant. if any of us is not convicted about our sin, not trusting in Christ as the Savior, that we would not go and eat judgment on ourselves, that we would not go and be like the Egyptians who don't trust the blood of the lamb but experience the wrath of God. Um, but that even now, if someone here is convicted of their sin, has not yet trusted Christ, as they ought. We pray that we would all repent of our sins, that we would lay down our arms, that we would wave the white flag, bend the knee, trust Christ as Savior and as King, and that we would be invited to the table of the Lord to experience glad feasting with him and his people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.